grand welcome this morning by Tracy. Tracy, thank you so much for that. Now we're going to embark on a study of God's Word in just a few minutes. After that, we will then participate and take the Lord's Supper together. Then Jessica will lead us in worship. Following that, we will have a commissioning service for three of our students that are diving into a great adventure this summer. Greg's going to tell us all about that in just a little bit at the end of the service today. <clears throat> but I want to begin this morning by going to the Lord in prayer. Um, just, just a couple of points I want, to, I want to point out. We're going to be praying for Ben and Christy and their family as they continue to travel. Uh, they should be home tomorrow night, so we're going to play, pray that this has been a time of rest, relaxation for them, and regrouping as Ben comes back and pours back into the Lord's prayer petitions. We want to also thank God for the, the answered prayers already for Micah Roberts. If y'all were here last week, you heard us say that Micah had just gotten a call on Friday night, just shortly after 10 o'clock, saying they had a kidney for him for a transplant. He thought he was on a two or three year waiting list. <clears throat> they did the surgery Saturday afternoon. He came home, I think, Tuesday? Tuesday or Wednesday, one of the two, he's already home. And then he posted a video of himself, I think yesterday, uh, just thanking everybody. So his kidney is, the transplanted kidney is functioning. All of his levels are returning to normal. So we want to certainly thank God for that. Valerie McClendon also has asked for prayer for her brother's families. Her younger, youngest brother, Jesse, tested positive for COVID-19. He has a wife and two children or three children, and then Caleb lived next door, lives next door, her other brother, and married with two children. Then we're going to be praying for another fellowship, New Jerusalem Baptist Church, um, Pastor Eric Brown and his wife, Anissa. Right, join me in prayer. <clears throat> Father, as we come before you this morning, we thank you for your presence in this place. And Father, we know that your presence here is not because of us but because of who you are, because of your love for us, because of your care and your compassion for us. You reveal yourself to us, Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can get to know you better and love you even more. Father, I pray for Ben and for Christy this morning that as they're traveling, that they would have traveling mercies and they would return home refreshed, and for Ben to, to be ready to pour back into his series on the Sermon on the Mount and most recently the petitions of the Lord's Prayer. Father, I thank you for the answered prayers that you've provided just this last week in Micah Roberts' life. Pray for Micah and Laura that you would give them just a sweet time of refreshment and recuperation for Micah from this surgery. I thank you for the results that his kidney is functioning and all of his levels are coming back to normal. As he said on his video, they haven't been normal in several years. Father, I do pray for Valerie McClendon's brothers, Jesse and Caleb and their families, as Jesse tested positive for the COVID-19 virus. Father, I pray that that would be a mild case for Jesse, that he not have any severe reactions to that and that the rest of the family would be protected from that. 
Father, I pray for our church that you would protect us in that. Help us be bold in our walk. Help us be bold in our witness, but help us be loving to others as we not only protect ourselves, but protect others who, are, who may be vulnerable. So, Father, keep us wise in that. Father, I lift up another fellowship this morning, New Jerusalem Baptist Church here in Greenville. Pastor Eric Brown and his wife, Anissa. Father, I pray for his family, first of all, that their walk with you would be sweet, that Eric would be shepherding his family, and that he would love Anissa as Christ loved the church. And Father, I pray for Eric's study this week, that it would be that it would have been fruitful, that it would have brought him to the throne. And that he would then be able to stand this morning and deliver the message that you prepared for him. And Father, I pray for an unreached people group, and it's the people of Kazakhstan. Father, we've been connected to the country of Kazakhstan for a number of years now. Father, it's a people of over 12 million people. They're historically aligned with the Islam religion. Right now, less than 7% of the population are evangelical believers. Father, we pray that you reach that nation and that you reach the nations of this world to usher in the return of Jesus. And Father, I will say now that we pray for your kingdom to come. And Father, I pray for our time this morning that the Holy Spirit would lead us into the truth of your word. Help us understand and apply what you teach us. And it's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. <clears throat> this morning... <clears throat> I'm hoping the lemon tea will help my voice. That'll, we'll get through it. We're going to be talking about opposites. As we look at the Sermon on the Plain out of Luke 6, and you can go ahead and turn to Luke 6. We're going to be getting in, in verse 17 in just a few minutes. But we're going to be looking at opposites. We're going to be looking at the blessings, and we're going to be looking at the woes. As I started thinking about that, the first thing that came to mind was the old saying, just the reverse side of the flip side of the same coin. And I thought, yeah, maybe that's it. But, you know, I looked it up. Once I saw the definition, that's not exactly what we're going to do this morning. Because that's, that statement, the flip side of the same coin, refers to two different people or two different groups trying to achieve the same thing, but just doing it in different ways. That's not what we're talking about this morning. <clears throat> we're talking about opposites. Polar opposites between the blessings and the woes. What we're going to be considering this morning will be the term eschatological reversal. Now, I've got to tell you, I practiced that phrase a lot this week. Because that doesn't just roll off the tongue. In fact, Kendra said, you could just forget that phrase. But the see, I can't even say it now. Eschatological reversal is what happens in the end times. 
there's going to be a reversal of circumstances for everyone. So this morning, we're going to examine the second part of this parallel passage in Luke 6. It's parallel in the, the teaching itself. It's not the exact same sermon. The Sermon on the Mount took place at one place at one time, recorded in Matthew. The Sermon on the Plain was recorded by Luke that took place at another time and in a different location. So we're going to be looking this morning at the Sermon on the Plain in Luke chapter 6. Let me invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Beginning in verse 17. And he, that is Jesus, came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all of the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes to his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil. On account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. You may be seated. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your ability to show us who you are through your word and for our ability through the power of the Holy Spirit to understand. In Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. Now, to see where we are this morning, as I pointed out last week, the Sermon on the Plains is in a different setting at a different time. Okay? It's a similar teaching to the Beatitudes that we see in Matthew 5. However, in the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus focuses on four Beatitudes, and then he adds four woes. The woes really of our our primary focus again this morning. Now Jesus has been up on the mountain praying and he initially spoke to his disciples and he named the 12 apostles. Then he came down to a level place and he began teaching and this is called the Sermon on the Plain. But I want to point out again this week as I did last week, the first group that Jesus approached with the multitudes. He addressed their concerns. 
as Greg pointed out several weeks ago, Jesus saw them. He saw their circumstances. He had compassion on them. And he saw this multitude that I referred to last week as the free lunch bunch. And somebody asked if they could borrow that. And I said, well, it's not original to me. So if you want to use it, that's fine. They were not seeking anything spiritual from Jesus. They were looking for something for a cure, a healing, or just some words. And Jesus healed those with illness. He cured those with unclean spirits. And he spoke so that everyone within earshot could hear. And he did this for people who would never, ever believe on him. But yet he cared for them and he had compassion. They received good from Jesus in their lifetime. <clears throat> now last week I pointed out that the teachings of the Beatitudes were directed toward the disciples of Jesus, his followers, while the woes were directed to the multitudes. We don't know that he physically made any changes in his view. It's not said anything like that. So we don't know. But we know that's who the teaching was for. The first and the fourth pairings of beatitudes and woes we looked at last week. That really focused on a current circumstance. Where they were today. This morning, we're going to be looking at the second and the third pairings of Beatitudes that truly focus on something for the future, something in our distance, coming. The first Beatitude, blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. In our poor spiritual state, there is nothing that we have to give God in and of ourselves. We recognize that, and because of the blessing from God, we can flourish in that because of what God has already done. And we don't have to buy our way into anything. The corresponding woe, those who are rich, those who have satisfaction with where they are, they have things. They're going to be poor. That's all they've received. Nothing else good in their future in eternity will be their experience. The fourth beatitude, blessed are, blessed are you when people hate you and they exclude you and revile you. When, when we follow Jesus, the world is going to turn against us. When we strive to be biblically correct rather than politically correct. We're going to be persecuted. We can count on it. We should count on it. That's what Jesus promised us. The world hated him, and the world will hate us as well. However, the blessing again is in the kingdom of God that is here already in part and will be fully realized when Jesus comes back. The corresponding woe, when people speak well of the individual, when they are socially acceptable, 
when they're politically correct and they don't rock the boat or cause waves, that's their reward. They've received good from God in that. Yet nothing good from God in eternity awaits them. Now, for this morning, as we focus on the second and third pairings of Beatitudes and woe, these speak, again, to a future event. In verse 21, the first part of verse 21, Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. On initial examination, this Beatitude is closely related to the first. Being poor and hungry kind of go hand in hand. If you're poor and you don't have any money to buy anything, you're going to be hungry. But Jesus is speaking of a different kind of hunger. He's speaking of a spiritual hunger. We see in, in Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What we should be hungering for, what we are hungering for, is the righteousness of Christ. As Christians, we get to wear that righteousness of Christ. It's borrowed. We yearn for that. We long for that. We ask for that. And because of that, we can flourish even when we're physically hungry, even when we're physically thirsty. The disciples were told that because of what Jesus was doing and is doing now, we are blessed. And the word that Ben pointed out that we can use in relation to this is the word flourish. Not anything we can earn, but something that's done for us. And in that, we flourish in that condition, knowing what's coming. Looking beyond our circumstances to eternity. Jesus clearly speaks to the current situation of his believers, of his followers, of being poor and hungry and oppressed. And yet he says we're blessed. We're blessed through Jesus. While we may get hungry or thirsty, the hunger and thirst for righteousness is met through Jesus Christ. In our bankrupt state of being, we long for the riches, richness of returning to that garden state that Adam and Eve enjoyed. We want to go back there. That's been the longing since just shortly after the first sin when God removed Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. We want that perfect relationship with God. That basic longing is clearly met through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. As we have a restored relationship with the Father, Jesus says clearly, you will be satisfied. That hunger and thirsting for righteousness will be absolutely met in eternity. It's being met in part now, but it will be absolutely met then. That restoration of a perfect relationship that we look forward to. Some commentators have pointed to the feast in heaven. 
We see that later in Luke, in Luke 13, verse 29. Luke 13, verse 29. People will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. Now, there's, there's lots of statements and jokes about what that feast is going to be. You know, one friend said, it's just going to be lined with Krispy Kreme donuts. We can get all of them we want to, and we don't get fat. <laughs> okay. I don't know if it's going to be that. It doesn't matter. But the fulfillment of what we receive from God will be absolute, completely satisfied. It is something truly to look forward to, long for, and pray for that thy kingdom come. Jesus speaks of this end times reversal. When he comes back, when the kingdom of God is fully here, then what was for the believers will be that. And what was for the non-believer will also be opposite. This is seen even in the key words in verses 21 and verse 25, the first part of both verses. Being at polar opposites from being hungry to being satisfied for the believers. For the non-believers, for being full now, being satisfied, and then being hungry later. So the corresponding second woe is found in the first part of verse 25 that I just spoke of. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Again, in the four woes section of this passage, Jesus is addressing primarily the multitudes, often referred to, at least by me, as the free lunch bunch. I really like that phrase. And it gives them a picture of where they're going to be versus where they are now. There is a turning from the current situation to an end times reversal. In the end time, Jesus promises, again, Jesus promises that there will be a reversal from the world view of what's good to a kingdom of God view of what is good. This is a future event that is promised by our Savior. Jesus tells the multitudes that at this time they may very well be satisfied. They may be pleased with where they are. They may not be hungry in physical terms. They may not be thirsty in physical terms. They may be very comfortable with where they are and what they've accomplished and what they've achieved. In humanistic terms, they may have reached that level of self-actualization. Which basically means, as they look at their life, they wouldn't change anything. They're completely comfortable and happy. Their bucket list is complete. That's their goal, to be self-satisfied. And they are literally full of themselves. That's what they're full of. Jesus speaks very clearly to this end times reversal in Luke 16. 
Luke 16, verses 19 through 25. Jesus says, There was a rich man that was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered in sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Jesus tells the multitude... Woe to you, for you will be hungry. In this life, they may find some level of satisfaction. However, in the end times reversal that is going to take place, that Jesus has promised, they go from being satisfied with themselves and their condition to be completely unsatisfied for all eternity. Hungry for anything spiritual and anything good from God. Then as we consider the third of the Beatitudes in Luke 6, Jesus talks about sorrow in our lives. In the second part of verse 21, Jesus said, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Jesus sees us. He knows our heartache. He knows our hurt. He knows our pain. He knows our anguish. He knows exactly where we are. And he cares. And he has compassion. He sees our conditions. He sees his brother. Jesus sees his brothers and sisters being impacted by the evil of this world. He sees the poor, the hungry, the illness of those. He sees those who are weeping now. This morning, we received a, Kendra received a text message from a friend who thought her mother who's in Harrison House, had a heart attack. They took her to the hospital. Uh, it turned out it was just low blood sugar. It's not a heart attack, so that was good news. But God even answered those prayers. Well, one of the things that Kendra said to me, that you know, right after that, she said, when is this going to end? Now, when is it going to end? Well, we know when it's going to end. We're going to talk about that in just a minute, when Jesus comes back. Jesus sees where we are. He knows every hurt and heartache that we're going through. And his promise is so very real. If you look at one of the focal words, I think the focal word in this passage, it's the word now. Now. 
N-O-W. Blessed are you who weep now. He knows where we are. He knows what's needed. And he promises something different for the future. And the promise is this. You shall laugh. I think all of us enjoy a good chuckle, a good laugh. We've got a grandson that just has the best belly laugh in the world. Love to hear him laugh. Okay. I discovered something this week. The word laugh is used only in this verse in the New Testament. That word doesn't appear in the New Testament anywhere else except right here in this verse. It appears 16 other times in the Old Testament. But every one of those references in the Old Testament refers to the type of laughter that's, that, that has a, a mocking, a derisive attitude to it. Nothing of joy. It's laughing at someone or mocking someone. So only in the New Testament is, is it found in this verse that we will laugh and it means that we will have joy. We will be so full of satisfaction of who God is in us and who we are in God that we will experience the quintessential essence of joy and just laugh. That's something to look forward to. Because it's kind of hard to find anything to laugh about now. I mean, you have to watch Andy Griffith or something like that. You know, so just, we do a lot. I do a lot. So anyway. The word laugh refers to that absolute joy and satisfaction that comes through the life and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We absolutely look forward to his return as we petition the Father, Thy kingdom come. Now we return to the woes. In this section of the story where Jesus was speaking to the multitudes, the woes were clearly pronounced as we examine the pairing of the third woe to the third beatitude. We again see the very clear end times reversal spoken. The last part of verse 25. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. The word laugh here is the same word that was used in the first part of this verse. In the, the blessing for the future for us as believers, we'll have that joy. And Jesus said, you may have had some laughter in your life now. There may have been elements of joy in your life. We know that that's good that comes from God. Even for those who do not believe and would never believe in Jesus Christ. He said, but for those who laugh now... You shall mourn and weep. And Jesus again does an exact reversal of the words. From the beatitude, from weeping to laughing, and from woe, from laughing to mourning and weeping. And notice that Jesus added a word here. And he added the word mourning. The word traditionally speaks 
of a process of grieving. And it's not just the feeling of grieving, but it's the actions of grieving. If you've seen someone in just serious grief, you know their body position changes. They may double over. They may reach out. I mean, there's, there's an action as well as the emotion. And that's what Jesus is referring to. And the word used for mourn actually transitions into a weeping. So Jesus almost said, not quite, but almost, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall weep and weep. Okay. But the second word for weep here is referring to that wailing. For a number of years, I was a chaplain at the hospital, and I was usually on call at night. And the only time they called the chaplains at night was when someone in the ER, someone on the floor had passed away, and they needed a chaplain to be there with a the family. I've seen some wailing. I've heard some wailing. When, when me and Greg and, and Ben went over to see Bill and Deborah when she had her stroke a couple of weeks ago, we didn't get to go in, but we stood out on, the, on the, the driveway, and we actually got there before Bill did, so we were able to pray for him. But before he got there, there was a family member that came out of the ER and met the other family, and there was a wailing going on. Obviously, someone had died. Okay. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. There is going to be a wailing for what's going on. To cry aloud, to shout due to the agony that they're in. And possibly they have the thought, this isn't fair. Let that sink in for a minute. They may say to themselves, this isn't fair. Let's consider Jesus' words later in the same book from Luke 13, verses 23 through 28. Someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. And he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. We heard you teach in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be a weeping and a gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. Here Jesus pointedly describes the end times when there is that separation between the sheep and the goats, the believers and the non-believers. As I was reading this passage, I began to think about the phrase gnashing of teeth and trying to picture in myself what, what that would be like. Well, I think I've got an example that's at least a shadowy depiction of that. A number of years ago, something was going on with my right ankle. 
It had swelled to about three times its normal size. I hadn't twisted it or anything else. It was red. It was as red as this shirt right there, okay, or any of the red shirt, any of this red shirt, okay. There was a heat to the swelling, and it was rigid like this. It wasn't a soft tissue rigidness. I was going through a pain like I'd never had before. Okay, yeah, I had a gout attack. And I'd heard that gout is like, arthritis is like putting your finger in a vice and turning it till you can't stand it anymore. And gout is turning it two more times. Okay. That was a description I'd heard before I had that experience. And I can testify to that. I couldn't stand. I couldn't stand to hop because it jarred my foot. I couldn't stand to touch it. Couldn't sleep. Ice didn't help. Heat didn't help. At 3 o'clock in the morning, I literally crawled down the hallway to wake Kendra up. And I said, either take me to the hospital or I'm going to the shop and I'm going to cut my foot off. Because in my mental state at that point, I thought cutting my foot off would be less painful than what I was experiencing. That may be just an inkling of what non-believers will experience in the end times, in that gnashing of their teeth. Jesus spends time teaching his disciples and his apostles and the free lunch bunch what was going to happen in the end times. There would be an absolute reversal of conditions for both groups. For the non-believer, they will experience that end times reversal going from being rich to never experiencing anything good from God for all eternity. From being satisfied or full to being hungry. From laughing to mourning and weeping. And from being socially accepted to being rejected by God. On the other hand, the believers. We will also have that end times reversal going from being poor to having the kingdom of God. From being hungry to being completely satisfied. From weeping to laughing. And from being hated on account of the Son of Man to being loved by God, our Father. Finally, we need to focus on a verse that we've not touched on yet. It's right in between the Beatitudes and the woes. Verse 23 of Luke 6. Following the Beatitudes, then Jesus said, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Jesus tells us we're to rejoice in that day. What day is that? Today, because we're experiencing the kingdom of God. And in the future, we'll rejoice we'll be able to leap for joy. I'm kind of looking forward to that because it's almost 65. I don't leap anymore. <laughs> okay. But I think in heaven, we'll be able to leap for joy. 
One of the supporting satellite verses for this teaching of Jesus, not surprisingly, comes from Isaiah. In Isaiah 65, verses 13 and 14. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servant shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servant shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servant shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servant shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail with a broken spirit. God was speaking through Isaiah that we are the called servants of Jesus Christ and of the one true God, saved by the redeeming blood of Jesus, and our reward is great in heaven. Amen? Okay. Join me as we pray for that kingdom come. Father in heaven, we humbly come to you wearing the righteousness of Jesus, standing before your throne and asking that you move into every nation so that the gospel of Jesus Christ is spread. For we know that this eventually ushers in the return of our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the blessings you have so richly bestowed on us in our lives. We thank you that even in the midst of tribulation, persecution, and downright heartache, we can and do flourish in the blessings that you have already provided for us. And there are even more waiting for us in your kingdom. Come, Lord Jesus, come. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now we're going to transition to the supper. You'll take your little communion kit, once again, peel the little top clear cellophane off the top that reveals the wafer, and then gently peel the next one to reveal the juice. Try not to spill it on yourself or your neighbor. Earlier in the night, when Jesus was about to be, was going to be arrested, He spent time teaching his disciples, and they were observing the Passover feast. The same feast that had been done for centuries, and with no changes in even the words that were spoken. The blessings were the same, the words were the same, their actions were the same. Yet on this night, Jesus did make some changes. He was pointing to himself being the Passover lamb, prepared for the sacrifice for the remission of our sins. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 24 through 26, it says, When Jesus had given thanks, he broke the bread and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As we partake in his kingdom today, take and eat. In verse 25, it says, In the same way, Jesus took the cup after supper, saying, 
This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And as we partake in his kingdom in part today, take and drink. Let's continue in worship. Jessica.